Welcome to the We Invested Podcast, where we teach you how to save and make more cash. I'm your host, Wesley Earp, and this is Season 4, Episode 40. And on this episode, we sit down with Slater Victorov, the founder and CTO of Indico. I hope you enjoy this episode. Let's do it. Today on the We Invested Podcast, we have Slater Victorov. And he is the founder and CTO of Indico. Slater, how are you doing today? I, you know, I'm doing pretty well, I have to say. You know, it's a pretty good day right after Valentine's Day here in Boston, but I do wish it was a little bit warmer. For sure, man. And I was just talking to you a little bit earlier, letting you know before we start recording, I think you're a genius, man, because of the, this industry and this field that you're in. You know, I have to say, I, I feel really blessed to be able to, you know, work in this field. I have to say it is incredibly fun. And just to be able to get to, you know, wake up and work on something that you love every day is is great, you know, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm glad that I've managed to have a, an effect on it as well. For sure, man, for sure. So, you know, let's just kind of start from the beginning, man, and talk a little bit about, you know, where you grew up. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I grew up mostly in LA, um, though I split my time between when I was, uh, you know, sort of eight, nine, ten thereabouts. Uh, my parents split up, and my mom moved up to far northern California, so like the the Oregon border. You know, people talk about SF, and they say that's northern California. If you look at a map, you know, that's not northern California. That's like the middle of California. Right. So, you know, uh, we were up in, you know, if you don't know the area, we were in Eureka. If you do know the area, we were in Trinidad, um, different Trinidad. Right. Um, so uh, I split my time there. So, you know, it's a really beautiful place up in the Redwoods. Very, very different from L.A. And then down in L.A., um, you know, I think I learned really early on that education was just really, really important to me. And unfortunately, school was something that, uh, you know, it kind of helped, but it also kind of got in the way of that. Um, and so, you know, I really pushed to go to, you know, this uh, particular, you know, public school in L.A. So I had to get up for high school at, you know, 430 every morning and, you know, ride, uh, you know, two to three buses across town, you know, back and forth. And then, you know, do the extracurriculars afterwards at school. And, you know, I mean, it was it was exhausting. And, you know, public transit in L.A. Uh, is rough. Um, and it made me decide that I was never going to, you know, pick any job where I had to wake up at 4.30 a.m. in the morning, you know, as long as I lived. For sure, man. And and so, you know, <clears throat> L.A. is like one of the uh, major city in America, man, and, and, and in the U.S. So, you know, how would you say that growing up in L.A. and, and kind of spending your time back and forth between Northern California and Southern California kind of impacted your, your outlook on life and success? You know, L.A. is a... I, a really interesting, you know, actually no one has ever asked me that question before. And I think it's a really, really interesting one. Um, so I think LA is a really weird place. Um, I think that what I say now, you know, as like an 18 year old growing back is from the hours of 10 PM to 2 AM, LA is my favorite city on the planet, right? Um, and I think it, it's this thing that's really interesting about LA. Cause on the one hand, you have absolutely everything. Right. So something that grew up, you know, like my my particular section of the public school, right, was, you know, 60 percent Korean. Right. And, you know, I, I don't know, it was just like and, you know, there's a you know, there's two different little Armenias and you decide which one has a better Armenian food. Right. That's the kind of place that L.A. is. And, you know, coming over to a place like Boston. Right. I, I didn't actually realize growing up in L.A. 
how weird that is, right? But you've just got so many cultures together in LA, right? And you know, like I had to cross across the whole city, right? Getting from where I lived to where I went to school, which was in, you know, North Hollywood, which is, uh, well, you know, like uh, usually not considered to be the best area. You know, if you know, if you know LA, I don't have to explain that about North Hollywood, but some folks are not from LA, they hear Hollywood and they think it's kind of a nice place. Um, so I, I don't know, that was that was really surprising. I think Boston was like absolutely not that way. I think most of the US is not that way. Um, I think it has great food in LA, um, you know, and I'd say Northern California, if you've never been there, it's just a completely different kind of place almost than anywhere else in the US. Um, uh, you know, the way actually that my partner describes it, she calls it uh, an anti-capitalist utopia which is uh, about right with all the pluses and minuses of what that means. So it's just like very laid back. It's just like people retired, hanging out in the redwoods, smoking weed, right? I mean, that's that's what it is. That's what they're famous for. For sure, man. So, you know, was it easy for you to make that transition or to adapt to the Boston lifestyle? Honestly, no. Uh, coming over to Boston was this really, really huge culture shock. Uh, you know, one of the things that I'll never forget, just like absolutely made me go crazy is, you know, something you have in Boston that you don't have in LA, right? You have ethnic food, right? Whatever that means, right? And you have Asian food. I remember the first time someone said that, I'm like, I literally couldn't believe my ears. I'm like, what are you talking about? Um, but that's, you know, that's completely normal in Boston, right? Like that's a thing that we talked about, whereas, you know, in LA, right? You know, if you're going out for Sichuan or you're going out for Cantonese food, right? Like that is an important distinction, right? Like people will come to blows over which Korean barbecue place you're going to, right? But like really not the same kind of food culture over in Boston. It, it, it's gotten better, but, you know, a decade ago, I think that was one of the really big things. It's just like, it's a lot more homogenous out here. For sure, man, for sure. And so, you know, this company that you founded and business that you run, man, is is very interesting. It's something that I'm looking forward to learning, you know, learning more about. So, you know, what is Indico? It's a, it's a good question. So the way that I would describe it at the very highest level is that we're like an AI powered bionic arm for the modern knowledge worker. You know, we were really founded out of this idea that, uh, and you know, we'll get into this in like a little bit more detail in a little bit probably, right? Um, but this new kind of AI that I actually really didn't believe in for a long time, but I was kind of converted and, and you know, understood what it could do in, you know, 2012, 2013. And really we were founded out of this desire to make this an accessible technology, right? Something that people could really use in sort of a productive way um, and, you know, say like, hey, you know, you don't have to be Google, you don't have to be Facebook to use this kind of stuff. Um, so th that's really where we started, right? And the way that we're really doing this today, because, you know, it's, you know, there's steps that it takes to make technology more accessible. And I say, you know, Indico really has taken that first big step from, you know, these AI projects used to be, you know, $10 million to do these. And, you know, you have to be Google and Facebook if you want to get after them in a serious way. You know, we've probably brought that down by 100x. Right. So that's making that a lot more accessible. But, you know, you're still talking 100 grand. So it means that we're making it accessible to, you know, the smaller enterprises. And, you know, hopefully over time that gets lower and lower and lower and we can keep, you know, being a part of that. But, you know, that's really where we play today. For sure, man. And so, you know, what what problems do you hope to solve for your for your clients? 
Yeah, so the center of the target for us uh, is around unstructured data, right? And really broadly, that's text, images, audio, documents, stuff like that, right? So when you think about, and you know, uh, in terms of sectors right now, we're mostly banking, financial services and insurance, right? Going out a little bit into healthcare and, uh, you know, health insurance and that, that sort of thing. Um, and what you've got to realize is that there's, you know, a hundred different places that a big organization is going to be touching these, you know, paper documents is going to be reading, you know, an email from a client and something along, something along those lines. Right now, it happens in a total black box, right? The level of transparency you've got is, you know, the loan application showed up on Bob's desk. Bob said the application is good, or Bob said the, said the application is bad, right? That's all the information you've got. And probably Bob and, you know, like Sue, they probably have two different processes that they're thinking about. They're probably not even doing it quite the same way. So really the way that we fit into that, right? Indico is basically this application where, you know, whatever the unstructured process is, you know, use a loan application as an example, right? You're gonna load your data into our platform, right? People are going to start doing the job, mostly the way that they, they have been doing it to start, right? Um, and then the idea is that this is a place where you're really going to, you know, collaborate as an organization to come up with a consistent way of doing this process that also has sort of this AI assistant, if you will, in the back that sort of pops up as people are sort of doing their own thing. It's like, okay, I get it. You know, I can help over here. I can help over here. Actually, you two are doing different things, right? And you need to like figure out how you're going to handle this edge case, right? So that's, that's how we kind of fit in. For sure, man. I mean, and that sounds, you know, that sounds incredible. So how did you get started in this industry? Like what gave you the spark to want to get involved in tech and AI and machine learning? Oh man, it's, you know, I, I sort of fell into it uh, totally backwards, right? You know, I, I would love to pretend that I had this planned out, you know, since I was super, super young, but you know, that's, that's maybe one thing that's worth noting, you know, growing up in LA and, and Northern California, right? There's not really an entrepreneurship culture. Right. You know, the, the closest thing you've got to entrepreneurship in L.A. is, you know, you've got like influencers in Hollywood and, and kind of entertainment. Right. Very different kind of deal, though. Right. And that was something that when I showed up in Boston. Right. Completely different. Right. I mean, it, it is in the water here. Right. There are startups everywhere. You know, maybe it's not SF. Right. You know, maybe it's not quite as big as New York, but, you know, it's sort of this small, very kind of like high quality group of group of companies. Right. And it was the first time I'd ever, ever seen, you know, a startup community like that. Um, and. I don't know, I, I was sort of hooked, right? I, I was bit, you know, the second I, I kind of saw that, even though when I showed up at college for the first time, you know, I thought entrepreneurship was just a euphemism for unemployment, right? Uh, and so actually at my very first internship, I sort of fell backwards into this AI problem. Um, and, you know, the problem, you know, maybe not to go into a huge amount of detail, right? But, you know, it, it was a hard problem and I did a pretty good job. Uh, and, you know, the company was very happy with me for doing a really good job. Uh, and then they switched CEOs and then my tech kind of got filed away in an IP vault and actually legally no one was allowed to touch it ever again. Uh, so I was, I was actually kind of bummed, right? You know, and it, it's, you know, it, it happens. It's one of those things that, you know, I think if someone were like a little bit more experienced, they're like, oh, you know, whatever. But, you know, I was a I was a sophomore in college. This was like the biggest thing I had ever done. Right. As far as I knew, this was the only thing I was ever going to do. So I was really bummed out. Um, and that that's when my found my my co-founder actually came, uh, Alec Radford. And he he really is the, the guy that kind of dragged me back in. Right. And, you know, it was 
it was a seeing his passion for it right you know that reminded me like wait wait a minute no like i really you know even though kind of this bad thing happened or whatever like i really do love this field and then we just kind of asked ourselves the question one day you know if we had if we had any space in the world like to just do stuff you know what would we do and we just we just loved reading these research papers together and we just loved working on ai together and you know one day we kind of asked ourselves the question could we maybe make a business out of this that was basically how it happened no nah, man that's you know very cool and um it just shows the importance of having good people around you you know people that push you and people that that are kind of interested in the same things you're interested in and have this similar drive to you. I think that, yeah, that, that's, I mean, absolutely important. And I think the the secondary thing is like starting is the easy part, you know, um, starting is, is maybe hard, you know, don't, don't get me wrong in the grand scheme of things, but you know, now sort of being eight, nine years out, I can say that, you know, starting it felt like a really big deal at the time, right? This idea, like, this is the problem that we're going to solve, but yeah, I mean, it was just the absolute beginning. Like we, we were taking baby steps there. You know, we were still in a dorm room for a year past that point, right? And and it was exactly that. It was just like hold each other odd, honest, you know, keep holding each other to a higher level and really just work together with people that you love. And, you know, that's where it started. For sure, man. So, you know, how would you define machine learning and AI? Yeah, so this is a, a really interesting uh kind of changing set of definitions. So uh, let me start with AI and then, you know, I can do machine learning relative to that. That's a little bit easier. So AI really roughly means anything that we are teaching computers to do that humans normally do, right? And that's like a very fuzzy sort of definition. And naturally that means it actually changes over time. So what we think of as being AI today is very different from what AI was, you know, 50, 60 years ago. You know, examples you can use, uh, you know, I, elevator operator, you know, that's a classic one is back when elevators were operated by humans, you know, an elevator, you know, system that pulled it up and down, you know, that was AI, right? Or like think of a toaster, right? Is, you know, if your toaster was totally manual, something that knows when to pop the toast up, you know, that's AI. Today, we don't consider any of that to be AI because that's not stuff that people normally do. That's stuff that machines normally do. Uh, and that's, that's common. Actually, there's this term called the AI effect, which sort of refers to this, right? It's just that AI is a constantly moving frontier, right? You know, it's it's about more machine capability. So today's main flavor of AI, right? And this is sort of the set of techniques that we have just started getting good at that are sort of powering, you know, the current wave of, of new stuff that we're teaching machines how to do, right? Um, the way that I talk about machine learning, and there's you know, if you ask 10 people, you'll probably get 12 different definitions of it. Um, I think the thing that is most important is the idea of programming with data, right? So really what you're doing in machine learning for the first time ever is rather than you just write down your set of instructions and, you know, the program kind of executes it, you still, you know, write your, your program, right? But you sort of have this way of setting aside a section, say, okay, now for this particular rule, rather than doing whatever I say ahead of time, I'm going to give you some data, right? And the way you're going to make that decision is you're going to look at the data and you're going to make that decision based on the data, right? So really machine learning, it's just this ability to say, okay, now, rather than making an explicit decision that I say ahead of time, you're going to look at the data and make this decision based on the data, you know, in, and you still have to define exactly how that's going to happen. It's still a very human process, right? But it's a, it's a new tool in our toolkit to kind of build new experiences. 
man, that is incredible. And just hearing the passion that you have for it, man, yo, it's like it's kind of blowing my mind hearing you talking about it. But um, yo, that's I mean that's insane. And I I really like the way you kind of simplified it and break it down to to uh, yeah, man, it just really simplified terms like teaching technology to do what humans usually do. I feel like. I, Look, I, I think the most important part about technology is making it accessible to people, right? I, I think that's something that people forget about all the time is that, you know, at the end of the day, uh, you know, the fact that I happen to be building very complicated technologies, like, yes, like that is maybe like an objective fact if you look at it, right? But the thing that I'm really interested about, right, is the new sorts of experiences that we're creating for people, right? It's just sort of to your earlier questions, right? It's like, what can people do now they couldn't do before? And how is this going to change things in the future to make them better, right? And, and I think that, you know, a lot of people maybe miss the forest for the trees, right? Uh, I try try not to do that as much as possible. For sure, man. So, you know, what would you say sets your company apart or actually gives your company the ability to compete with giants like AWS, Google, Microsoft, and IBM? So I think one of the, one of the big things here is just this philosophy, right? Because uh, when you talk about a really big tech company like Google or, or Facebook, right, and you talk about, you know, maybe the, the old, maybe not even right to say it old, but, you know, maybe classic big enterprise deep learning, right, the stuff that you hear Google and, and Facebook and Microsoft doing, the thing is that they've got these use cases, right? If you talk about Google AdWords or, or Facebook ad targeting, right, you know, every like tenth of a percentage point on that algorithm, right, that's money, right? That's $10 million in the bank. Most people don't have situations like that, right? That's actually like a really rare setup in terms of the grand scheme of, of industry and enterprise. And that's something that I think a lot of people don't understand is that, you know, these companies, these Google, you know, and Facebook and Microsoft, right? They sort of spun up. They realized deep learning was this exciting area, you know, way before anyone else realized it, right? They started aggressively hiring, you know, every expert in the world they could find, right? You know, Google was deploying like a billion dollars to hire, you know, 24 researchers out of the UK. I was like, what the hell are you doing? Google's like, no, trust us. This is going to make sense in a few years, right? Um, so I think it was really, really interesting to see um, you know, things just come from a, from a space like that, or they're so like incredibly inflated and, and realizing that that, that represents AI status quo, right? And so the question is, okay, so what am I going to do against these people that from an objective perspective, you know, they have way more money than I'm ever going to have, right? They have way more researchers than I'm ever going to have, right? Um, so we've got to come at it from a different direction. Right. And, and, you know, we don't have this use case where we can just throw researchers at it and get, you know, a tenth of percentage point and, and print $10 million. Right. And, and, and so, you know, we ask ourselves, what is the unmet need here? And what we really came to, right, and it's this, this totally different view is that rather than building AI sort of the classic way, which is like we are going to build the contract engine, we're going to build the invoice engine, we're going to deliver it to you. Right. And, and you know, you kind of better like it we instead take this notion of like, we are empowering the subject matter expert, right? So the idea is we're giving you a product that is then letting you build your own AI tools, right? And the thing is like big tech fundamentally, uh, maybe not not all of big tech, big tech's like, that's a big term, right? But Google and, and Facebook and Microsoft, right? The couple of organizations out there with the vast majority of this talent, they have no need to approach the market in that way. And in fact, it's a really big minus for them to build tools like that. It's just, it, it's a waste of resources to, to let people compete against them more easily, right? 
So it's like the big companies have like a one size fits all approach, but you guys are allowing your clients and your customers to customize and, and make it to exactly what they need. And that's exactly right, right? And you know, when you're talking about something like a loan application, right? There's no one size fits all uh, solution to that, right? Right, for sure. So, you know, what are your predictions for the next decade of AI? So I think the next decade of AI, there's still going to be this really big, uh, you know, focus uh, on the on the, these couple of top companies, right? You know, OpenAI and, and Facebook and Google, because still in AI, compute is the limiting factor, right? Um, I think you know one other thing, you know, Nvidia, Nvidia, Nvidia just prints money at this point, right? I, I don't I don't see a point in the future where there will be like meaningfully finite demand for nvidia gpus right like I, I look forward to the day when i when my money can buy gpus again right um but you know like that hasn't been true for for five six years at this point so i think that the future of ai is actually going to look a lot like the the past of ai in some interesting ways right you're going to see these really big data centers going up you've already started to see it right you know building just you know, massive multi-billion dollar data centers to create these, you know, massive new generation models. Um, I think that you're going to see a lot of people asking the question of if we can really meaningfully use quantum computing here, right? I think my, my personal answer is, I think we're still a few decades off from that. Like, I don't think we're going to be able to figure it out, but compute is going to be such an intense uh, need. You're going to see more and more companies trying to solve it that way. For sure, man, for sure. I mean, I think that's some great insight and, uh, you know, great foresight into the future, man, and just forward thinking. But, um, you know, your company recently announced a $22 million Series B raise, you know, so what exactly does that mean? And how was that process for your company? Yeah, so, uh, you know, and, and the series have, you know, they've changed so much with time, right? So I think now you probably even see some companies raising like $20 million seed rounds and, you know, crazy stuff like that. But in, in the most, uh, you know, maybe slightly traditional, but still, you know, up to date in modern terms, usually the way to think about it, you know, seed round is all about, okay, we've got sort of a good idea. We know approximately where to go. We just have to get this product market fit really nailed down. And this is like, okay, um, you know, we, we see the market there, we see people want, and we've managed to build a product that we can show, you know, really scratches that itch, right? Um, you know, the Series B is really about making the processes that are then going to scale that, right? And, and so, for instance, you know, you have to build out a customer success, uh, you know, function that is going to work really, really sustainably. You know, for us, the Series B was this whole generation of customers getting up into production for the first time, right? Um, or, you know, that, that was kind of like the very, very start, you know, sort of before we actually raised the B. And then it's this question of, okay, now they've gotten into production. Can we show that we can, A, continue to sell more clients in a really scalable way, you know, sort of going up from a couple million ARR to, you know, getting into the like five and $10 million scales in ARR, right? Um, and also really importantly, showing for those customers that got out into production, how well did this work, right? Are they buying more? You know, are they coming back? Are they happy? You know, so that... It was really all the stuff that, you know, we raised those $22 million to figure out is, you know, get these processes set up. And really, when we look forward, uh, and actually a lot of these these numbers are public, right? So I can kind of share them is that, 
And, and for context, sort of a, a really important metric that people will pay attention to here in terms of like, is your product motion scaling is NRR or net revenue retention. And it's basically, you know, for every dollar in product, you know, you sell to a customer today, you know, how many dollars is that customer buying next year? Right. Um, the idea being, you know, if you're selling them good stuff, especially in a subscription business, they should be buying more and sort of a best in, in class, like a really high performing company might be doing 125%. And so that's, you know, like 25% upsell, you know, of customer every year. I mean, that's, that's really good. Um, we had uh, 149%. Um, so, you know, basically, you know, uh, from the metrics we we got coming in from the series B, right, and sort of these experiments, like people can't get enough of this stuff, right? Not only have we shown that we've got this product market fit, but we've shown that we've got this roadmap that they really are resonating with, right? They really love. And, you know, one of the other metrics that we got to put up, um, you know, that's really now, uh, you know, paying benefits for us going forward is we've got a 97% success rate um, from kind of initial project, uh, you know, goals to, uh, you know, success in production. And now also for benchmarks, because, you know, the numbers don't really mean anything unless you've got something to compare it to, right? But so the same way, you know, we've got that 150% against the best in class in the industry that is 125%. The average success rate in our industry uh, in terms of, you know, when it's out in production, is it doing what you thought it was going to do when you started is 11%, right? Thus, nine in 10 projects will either fail before they get into production, before they ever go live, right? Or they will fail when they're live. Now, and, and that's bad. That's like really, really bad. And, you know, one of the big things that I really care about is changing that, right? I think our industry can and should do better. But uh, I think we showed that we do have a better way because we were able to get a 97% success rate. Man, and so, you know, when I think about, or when I, look at most startups especially startups that have two people that have two founders you have one founder that's um kind of obsessed with the product itself that knows the product understands it loves the product and then you have the other founder that maybe understands um the business side a little bit more understands the metrics understands the networking and the marketing and the things like that but it seems like you have a really good grasp and understanding of both sides so you know how did you go about getting this getting your business acumen and understanding what metrics matter the most and uh you know just things like that yeah. man there is there's so much work to do in a business like honestly so you know there, there's a lot of a lot of answers to that so i think the the short so and maybe the short answer is before i was cto i was ceo right so you know when when we were founding out in the dorm room right and we were a bunch of engineers right i was the most uh business oriented engineer that was out there uh it turns out that actually the most business oriented engineer is probably a cto and not a ceo right um but you know we weren't you know and then basically what happened is that at a certain point i got far enough and indico sort of had built up enough of this really big technical steam that we went and got like a really really good ceo tom wild to come in and you know like take over and you know i'm over moved over to the cto role the rest is kind of history um so so that that's a big part of it right is that because i did come over from that side um you know i i kind of retain a lot of that knowledge right and a lot of that kind of focus on like what is the end goal right what are the metrics that we're really driving at but i think one of the things that's just important is like especially in the early days right when you're two or three people um 
you can't start dividing up the the responsibilities, right? Like you can you can try, and we tried in the early days, but it just like it didn't it didn't work, right? So we just all had to do everything, right? Because I think when we were starting out, honestly, even today, right? Everything we're doing, we're doing for the first time, right? Um, you know, maybe that's not true in some other other area, right? But not only were we like making a company for the first time, you know, we were all first time founders until, you know, several years later. Um, but also all the stuff we're doing is this bleeding edge technology, right? It's not like we can go out and like copy and paste and answer off Stack Overflow, right? And then something that we learned really, really early on is that, you know, when you're out over the edge like that, you just need someone who is like watching your back, right? You can check your work, right? Someone that you can, you know, toss things over with, right? And if you have someone that like, you know, if an investor has a complaint and I can't go and talk to, you know, our head of engineering about that complaint, right? Um, even though, you know, it's like a business metric, it's going to be really tough for us to get to a solution. Um, but that is, you know, I will say something that people don't necessarily uh, recognize, especially as you as you start getting larger and, you know, that that division of responsibility starts becoming just like not an option anymore, right? Is being the person that sits in that spot and can help people understand like, oh, hey, like I know you two think that you agree, uh, but actually like, you know, y'all think totally different things are gonna be happening in three weeks, right? Or like, you know, vice versa, just being that person that can help people across the table, communicate with each other uh, and understand what they're saying is just an incredibly valuable skill. So, you know, how did you go about actually building your team to find those right pieces to find that intermediary and to find the, you know, just the different pieces. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it, it's, it's one of those things that never gets any easier, too, right? Um, you know, I, I and I, so I would say that I'm actually still doing it the same way, even at you know, like whatever eighty people as I did when we were like zero, two, three, and four people, right? Um, I, I don't talk with every single candidate today in person during the interview stage, but I still email with every single uh, person we send an offer to before they accept, right? So I think that's one thing that's really, really important is realizing that um, sort of sort of that, to that point earlier, right? Like you can't find a person who like can build your team and like think of that as a separate function. Um, while, you know, it's important and you've got to make sure someone has the time to devote to doing it right, you have to realize it is everyone's responsibility um, to build, you know, the best team that you possibly can. Um, and really realize at the end of the day, like you don't have anything but a team, right? Uh, especially today, right? And, you know, talent has always been hard to find. Good people have always been hard to find. Um, but it, it's so much harder now than it ever has been before, right? And it's only getting more intense as you both see sort of Google and Facebook going out into, you know, remote areas now and competing for talent, right? Uh, and and people just realizing that, you know, they, they have valuable skills. So there's two things that, that I think. I think one, um, starting a company out of school is, is great. Like it is a really, really good opportunity because you've got friends that you have worked with at school. And that's actually pretty rare to have a bunch of people that can actually go in and start something at one time. So like first day, it was super easy. I basically just talked to every, you know, all the smartest people I knew. And I was like, will you join? And a lot of them said, no, absolutely not. You're crazy. What are you talking about? Um, but some of them said yes. And, uh, you know, you only need a couple, right? Um, it, it's really surprising what two people can do in the early days. For sure, man, for sure. And so, you know, what would you say are like some of the lessons that you learn throughout your career um, and throughout, you know, this, 
this journey that you've been on building your company? You know, there's definitely a lot of lessons. I think the most important one is, you know, no matter how hard you think it's going to be, uh, it's going to be so much harder than that. Uh, I think most of the, you know, to what extent there is research on what it takes to be a successful entrepreneur, right? Um, grit is the thing that people keep coming back to, right? And I think the quotes that resonate most for me sort of thinking about entrepreneurship are things like, being a successful entrepreneur is about having the patience to be misunderstood more than everyone else, right? Uh, or just like this notion that like at, at the end of the day, like it's really hard. And, you know, maybe you, you know, like when I, when I was starting in, you know, Indico was founded in 2013, you know, I thought that deep learning was going to be, you know, widely deployed and we were going to have transfer learning and language figured out in like three years. Right. And now, you know, 10 years later or whatever, right now it is officially called an early market. Right. Um, and, and when that's sort of the scale of things and, you know, like obviously so much has happened in between now and then, and like, it's hard and every part of it is hard. And, you know, like you gotta get up every morning and say like, okay, I may have to make three of the hardest decisions that I've ever had to make today. I'm going to have to make them quickly. Uh, and then I'm just going to have to feel really good about the fact that, you know, I know I'm doing right by everyone. Uh, and I'm building something that I really, really care about. You know, I, I think that if people get into entrepreneurship because they have this impression that, you know, it's going to be luxurious or they're going to make a lot of money, um, that is the surest way to guarantee that neither of those things will happen, right? Um, because, you know, money is just like a pretty shitty motivator, frankly, right? And you've got to really care about what you're doing. So how would you define success as an entrepreneur? I'll let you know when I find it. Um I, yeah, I don't know. I think this is really tough. I think success, you know, broadly is a really tricky notion. It, it's one of these weird things where personally, um, I wouldn't consider myself to be a successful entrepreneur yet. You know, I don't, I don't know that I would ever, that I'll ever consider myself to be a successful entrepreneur because sort of no matter what, what state I'm at, right. And even though, you know, I've, I've accomplished a lot more than I maybe thought I would, even in the early days of Indico, you know, this is probably, this has gone a lot further than I, than I really thought thought it would. Um, I'm not done. Like I, I'm nowhere near to done. Right. I think that, you know, sometimes now people ask questions like, oh, you know, it, can successful entrepreneurs answer? And I don't know, like we've raised $36 million, like we're selling into the Fortune 500. And I say like, okay, I'm allowed to maybe respond to that core question now. Right. But, you know, am I a successful entrepreneur? Like not yet. Maybe, maybe someday. Nah, man, you still got that hunger. Even after raising 36 million, a lot of people would feel like, man, I made it. But just to hear you say, no, nah, I'm not done. I'm nowhere near close to being done. It just, you know, let me know you have a different type of mindset. You know, there, there's a saying that we used to always say back at Indico. It's always escalate, right? And I think like the, the more that you can realize, you know, there's always a higher peak, right? You know, there's always more you can do. I don't know, don't be satisfied. Be happy, but not satisfied, right? For sure, man, no, I love that. So, you know, how would you like for people to remember you and your company? Um, yeah, maybe maybe both of those separately. I think that the way that I want people to think about me, like from a historic perspective, you know, uh, in, in this world where I've, you know, earned maybe my footnote in history. And I think that's that's about, you know, as grandiose as I can I can kind of dream. It's like I want to be a footnote in some chapter on AI somewhere. Right. But I want to be, you know, a guy that's known for taking um, bleeding edge technology, right? Things that are impossible when I start them and actually turning them into reality, 
Um, something that I say, you know, like I consider myself an engineer first and foremost. And, you know, a lot of people, they hear me talk about business or, you know, like I, I you know, am I, I'm an EIR at a, you know, VC firm, right? And they're like, what do you mean you're still an engineer? To me, an engineer is someone that goes from idea to reality, right? And engineering is that art of figuring out, okay, what is it going to take to go from idea to reality, right? It is that execution and that grind. To me, entrepreneurship is just the truest form of engineering, right? Because you're realizing that reality doesn't end at the prototype, right? Reality ends when you've got sort of a whole organization set up that is self-sustaining, that is delivering the change that you thought you could deliver in the world. And it turns out, that is way harder to build than building a prototype. <laughs> for sure, brother, for sure. So, you know, what does the future of Indico look like to you? Uh, you know, I think that we're in this really amazing situation, right? Where, and I maybe, you know, what's that old proverb? Like, uh, may you live in interesting times, but it's both a blessing and a curse, right? And I think that's what AI feels like to me very much is that, on the one hand, we have the most incredible technology that we've had to, you know, empower workers probably in, you know, 50, 70 years, right? In, you know, uh, a huge amount of time. But, and we've already started to see this, right? There is a lot of danger in the adoption of these technologies, right? I think, you know, programmatic bias uh, is a really obvious one that we're starting to see already, right? Thinking about the deep fakes and just like massive disinformation campaigns, which we're starting to see some hints of, right? But there's some, there's some really serious risks, right? To, to be very concerned about when it comes to AI. And our point of view, right, is, is twofold. Is number one, um, you're never going to solve these structural issues with AI unless you answer the question, how do I put this technology in the hands of people whose day-to-day -day lives it is affecting, right? That's why I think Indico's philosophy of like, no, we're not delivering an AI model to you, right? You, We are giving you a product that is going to help you build your own. We think that's fundamental in resolving that conflict, right? Um, and I think the second piece that we see as being really, really important, something that we're always trying to drive forward is this notion of ethical and responsible AI, right? And what does it mean to be ethical and responsible? Um, for me, uh, fundamentally, it comes down to this notion of control, right? I think you hear a lot of people talk about, you know, these things, explainability and, and transparency, right? To me, it is, and, and, you know, obviously all of those are important, right? But to me, they're fundamentally means to an end. And that end is how do you give people the appropriate control over these systems? How do you make that control transparent? How do you make sure you've designed that control pane such that a non-technical person can understand it and actually really use this technology in a way that, you know, empowers them and doesn't, uh, you know, shackle them to the whims of the machine, right? So do you think humans will have to merge with AI and technology in the future, like in a, in a different way than we already have? I think that we don't, I, I, I do believe in that, you know, generically, right? I think that, you know, there's this term from, and, and you know, I think there's maybe a lot of different ways to, to mean that. So maybe let me explain, you know, the way in which I specifically mean that. Um, there's this term actually from uh, chess way back in the day when like we were just getting computers good at chess uh, called a centaur. Uh, and the idea of a and a centaur is an AI human team, right? And, and you know, I think right back after Deep Blue beat Kasparov, they uh, started all these competitions where they're like, anyone is allowed to compete, right? Like bring whoever you want, right? We don't care, human, machine, team of humans, team of machines, doesn't matter. 
right? So that's where this term centaur comes from, is this uh, era, right? I think that we are waiting for the return of the centaur, right? I think that what we have not realized is that we, we've gotten sort of too trapped in these notions of self-driving cars, right? I think that people have jumped to this notion of like full autonomy, right? And like cyborgs and stuff like that. And they, they probably jumped there just because that's what a lot of the AI media looks like. Right. I mean, you know, because they saw Terminator, right, because they saw, you know, 2001 A Space Odyssey, right, because that's what they've got in their head. But I think what we're actually starting to see develop is something that's really, really different. Right. It's something that is closer to this notion of a centaur. Right. It's closer to these notions of control pains where the question is not really how do we build the smartest AI. Right. It's not really how do we replicate humans in the most accurate way. It's more how do we build the best, you know, most cohesive human AI system right? Where the human is doing the best thing for the human to be doing, the AI is doing the best thing for the AI to be doing. And that's where you get sort of this notion of the bionic arm where, you know, the human's in control and you're just, you know, you can lift a hundred times more than you could before. Right. For sure. Hey man, Slater, thank you so much for your time today, brother. I really appreciate it, man. And can you let the people know, you know, before we get out of here, how they can contact you on social media, find you on the internet? How can they get in touch with you? Absolutely. You can uh, check my blog out at slater.website. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter, uh, SL8RV. Ask me a question on Quora or check out Indico at indicodata.ai. For sure, man. And look, before we go, at the end of every podcast, we like to play a rapid fire question game where I ask you three questions. So if you're willing to play, I'll go ahead and ask. 100%. All right. Question number one Where's your favorite place to travel? The Crag. Uh, up to Rumney to the rocks. All right, all right. Question number two: What song represents your life the most? Oh, at this moment. Uh, oh, sorry. I have to. I actually have this. Um, uh, it's called "What I Be" by Mike Slap. Super dope. All right. Question number three: What's an amazing thing that you did that no one was around to see? Uh, does it count if there's a news article about it? <laughs> nah, let it rip. Okay, yeah. I mean, there there was this one time, and like I didn't realize how sketchy this was until years, years later. But I was in the Himalayas trekking, um, and uh, I got separated from my group. Uh, basically, what happened, uh, and you know, if folks have been trekking before, they realize this is a thing that can happen. So we're like up, we're uh, uh, on Kanchenjunga, which is the third highest mountain in the world. Um, and we're up, you know, around base camp, right? So just going up above base camp. And we're going to this like big peak to see, you know, like a sunrise over one of the smaller, one of the smaller mountains. We're like hiking up, hiking up. And I say to someone, it's like, oh, hey, look, you can like, you can see it over there. We're almost there. I didn't realize it at the time, but all hell broke loose. Because the thing is like, you could see it, it looked so close, but you know, we were still six, seven, you know, or more miles away. Right. People didn't realize that the group just started going. Right. And then, you know, all of the, uh, you know, the Sherpas. Right. And also the instructors are like, oh, shit. And they have to like go and they actually end up leaving me uh, and this other person behind. And, and the other and like, I'm, I'm like pretty fit. Like I'm, I'm a I'm a good hiker. Right. This other person was not right. They were like, you know, uh, they, they weren't even going to necessarily go because they weren't sure they could make it. And then there we are sort of abandoned right? Like, what the hell are we going to do? 
Um, and so I, I guess the thing that eventually, you know, we, we hike after them for a while and she can't go on anymore. She's like, I just can't do it. Like, I can't walk, I'm exhausted. Like, and we still haven't found the group. So I'm like, well, shit, like, what am I gonna do? Um, so I'm like, okay, sit here in like a really visible place. I break off to another side of the mountain and I hit the, if you, do you know the word choss? No. So choss is a kind of like rock almost. So it's, it's, it's like a rock face almost right after a landslide. So it's like all of the rock is just, um, it's like not well set into the rock face, right? Okay. And it, incredibly dangerous. So I basically get in the worst choss I've ever seen, right? So this is like, it's basically a vertical uh, face where every time I'm going up and taking another, you know, pull, the rock face is just crumbling down under me. And it's like these shoebox sized rocks, like I've got to be dodging out of the way for like 300 feet I had to go to get to the top of this thing. Uh, I was the, it was the most terrifying thing I've ever done in my life. I'm glad that I lived, uh, but I almost didn't. Man, that's like some Mission Impossible type scaling the side of the mountain. <laughs> yeah, you know, I have to say that. It's like, after that, I can do anything. <laughs> nah, man, that's super dope. Hey, Slater, thank you so much for your time today, man. I definitely learned a lot. Like I said before, man, you're a genius, bro. And I appreciate you taking the time to sit down with us. And uh, yeah, man, I enjoyed it. Thanks so much for having me. It was a total pleasure.